those of you here in the room, want to give a shout out to those of you who join us on the other side of the camera. Welcome uh, to Central, and uh, let's give it up for those people joining us online as well. That's awesome. Here in the room, we got these bad boys we'll be following along with. Uh, most people talk in uh, about 120 to 150 words per minute. Uh, I'm probably more 150 with wind gust up to 200, so I apologize for that. Uh, but this will help us follow along. You can find these online as well. Just go to our website, forward slash notes. Uh, well, I'm excited to kick off this brand new series we're calling Vintage Values. It's an opportunity for us to remember where we've come from, uh, to honor those who have gone before us, and to realize that, man, God has great things on the horizon as well. And the way that we're going to get there is by applying some vintage values and honoring the legacy that we're a part of. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've made Jesus a leader in the forgive of your life here, and, uh, and that's awesome. I want you to know, man, we are a part of a legacy. Uh, a lot of people, our legacy has been forged uh, with sacrifice and dedication and commitment, uh, hundreds of generations. Uh, before us. If you're a part of Central Christian Church, this is your church home. Uh, man, you're a part of a legacy. 80 years. We're about to celebrate our 80 year anniversary, right? 80 year birthday. That's awesome, right? Uh, we're a part of a legacy. And as I've been thinking about this and thinking about uh, people who have instilled some vintage values into me, uh, I start thinking about uh, people who, who've really helped me along my journey. Uh, the individual that keeps coming to my mind is my grandma. Uh, her, her name was Betty Lou Ferguson. And, uh, and my grandma, man, she was a, a, a fireball. She was like five foot two. Uh, but if she took an Enneagram, she never did, but she'd be in like an eight, right? She's a challenger. Uh, if she ever took the Myers-Briggs, she'd be an ENTJ, right? Like she's the commander personality. Uh, but I was her grandson and she loved me. Yeah, but, but if you, if you didn't, weren't her grandson, you crossed her like you were lucky if you made it out alive because uh, she was just spicy, right? But I love my grandma for several reasons. Uh, my grandma, she would let me eat ice cream and drink Coca-Cola uh, for breakfast. And that was my grandma, right? It was my grandma. Uh, my, my grandma uh, loved people. Uh, my grandma always had time. No matter how busy she was, she, she would pause and take time. She had one of these old school phones. You probably, some of you might remember this. These phones that were like attached to a wall, right? She had like this 50-foot extension cord. She'd be like vacuuming, cooking, while talking to people, like making time for people, no matter what she was doing. I remember my grandma uh, I took her to chemo. She, she ended up dying of lung cancer, but I was taking her to treatments. And, uh, and she, she, we were going there to get her help. But my grandma was going to help these nurses that were going to be helping her. And she would hear their story. She would be like, how can I help you today? And I'm like, grandma, just let them help you for once. And I remember one day we were driving out of the parking lot, right? Being there, we were there a long time. And uh, my grandma was like, hey, I think that's Sue. Let's drive over. I need to talk to Sue. And she, I was like, Grandma, I don't know about you, uh, but I'm tired. Can we go home? And she's like, no, I need to talk to Sue. Sue, how you doing? Tell me about Bill. How's his job going? Oh, man, if one, job, one door closes, another door opens, you just hang on to that, Sue. And like she would just encourage people everywhere, everywhere she went. My, my grandma taught me a lot of valuable lessons. Uh, she had a lot of witty sayings. Uh, my grandma would always say this. She'd say, Tim, the only person that can make a mistake is the one that's doing something, right? That saying saved my butt on several occasions, right? My parents were going to take some action, and uh, my grandma was like, the only one that can make a mistake is the one that's doing something. He's just doing something. It's fine. It's fine. And she, she, would, she would help me. She would intervene at times. Uh, my, my grandma, man, she, uh, she, she, she taught me this lesson that, that if you have proximity with people, you can change the trajectory of their life. If you just have proximity with people, you can change the trajectory of their life. You see, my grandma, she drove a school bus for 33 years. Not a long line of people on career day looking to drive a school bus, but my grandma did. 
And uh, most people wouldn't say that's prestigious. Most people wouldn't say driving a school bus leads to influence. Well, you wouldn't know my grandma. And so the kids that drove or rode on on, on bus number eight, they coined the phrase wonder bus. And, And that was wonder bus number eight. When my grandma retired at the age of 71, the school district retired wonder bus number eight. When my grandma passed away, People from all different walks of life, some doctors, some lawyers, uh, some farmers, some, some grocery store clerks and gas station clerks, they, some people not even working, still trying to figure out life. They, they lined up to talk about how my grandma had made an impact in their life. My, my grandma made such an impact in my life that we just chose to name our firstborn son after my grandma. His name is Betty. No. <laughs> No, his name's not Betty. We wouldn't do that to him. Uh, his name is Cannon, uh, because I think Cannon is an awesome name. That's not to put pressure on him to be a quarterback or a pitcher. Uh, that's because my grandma's maiden name was Betty Lou Cannon. And so Cannon after my grandma, uh, Cannon Scott Perkins Scott after my wife's uh, grandparents and the impact that they made on, on our lives. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us desire to leave, live a life that leaves a legacy. We all desire to not just go through life treading water, but to make, a, make an impact with this one life that we've been entrusted with. And, and, and here's beyond that, beyond you wanting to make an impact, beyond me wanting to make an impact, I believe God wants to make an impact with your life. And today we're going to dive into that. How, how do we leave a legacy? How, how do we apply some vintage values that ends up leaving a legacy for generations to come. And so uh, Harvard Business Review, they, they wrote an article about how, how to leave a legacy. Fascinating article. Kimberly Bangzing, she's a professor of admini- a business administration. Uh, she's an ethics scholar at Duke University. And in this article, she writes about how to live life in such a way that leaves a legacy. And one of the key points that I thought was interesting, she says this. She says, think about the previous generation and what they did for you. And here's what, here's what she said, and I, and I quote this. She says, recall your predecessors. Now she's writing in like a business context, but I think you'll see the, the crossover. She said, recall your predecessors and how their actions affected you. Uh, what resources did they leave behind for you and your contemporaries? Uh, how did they change the organization to provide you with opportunities? How did they shape your organization's culture? While you can't always go back and reciprocate the deeds of a prior generation because the strategies and tactics are outdated, You can pay it for by behaving similarly to the next generation of organizational actors. Check this out. Research shows that when we know we have benefited from the legacy of a prior generation, that gets us thinking about how to make a positive legacy that we want to leave for future generations. And we tend to make better long-term oriented decisions. End quote. Well, we've certainly benefited from those who have gone before us, haven't we? Uh, isn't it nice to know that, man, we, we, we've, we're building on this legacy that others have gone before us to lay this foundation. Uh, their pioneer spirit, their deep love for San Jose, uh, their sacrifice that they've made for us. Those vintage values will now be required of us as we move into the future. But vintage values are not the same as vintage tactics, right? Uh, for example, vintage values, vintage tactics are very different. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, like they walked from town to town, telling people the good news about Jesus, like they wore Birkenstocks, right? And they, 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 they told everyone about, about God, and it was awesome. Well, well, thank God that we now have cars, and we now have planes. And so like uh, Rick, and, or, or uh, Roger, and Mike, we went to India this week on a missions trip. It's awesome. But imagine if they're like, no, that's not biblical. We're going to actually walk to port 
And now we're going to board a sailboat. Now we're going to sail to India. Then we're going to walk to the mission. Then we're going to walk back to port. Then we're going to sail back to San Jose. Like, see it in 2025, guys. Like, that's not wise, right? But the value, spread hope, spread the good news. That's the value. The tactic has changed. The value remains the same. You go to work tomorrow. Uh, maybe you go to work and you're like, you're like, you know what? I'm going to apply some biblical values. I'm going to go to work on a camel, right? So like you roll up on a camel. This is biblical, right? Now I'm going to, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, right? Like, no, your coworkers are going to think you're crazy, as they should. Because you got the value and the tactic confused. While riding a camel may be very biblical, the tactic, the strategy has changed. The value spread the good news remains the same. Uh, maybe you've heard of this college called William Jessup University. Uh, yeah. It was actually started here uh, through Central Christian Church. And it's awesome. Awesome to be a part of it. It's part of our legacy. But imagine you send your student to, to William Jessup University. Imagine you go to William Jessup University yourself. And you go to English 101. They're like, get out your stone tablets. We are now going to engrave our syllabus on this. Get out your chisel and hammer. Like, no. The, the tactic has changed. We've got technology, right? Uh, uh, but the, 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 the purpose, the value, help people grasp a biblical worldview and, and to make an impact in their career field remains the same. So the value and the tactic is, is different. And so tactics change. People change. Strategies change. But there are some vintage values that will always remain the same. And I just want to say this. As long as I'm the pastor here at Central Christian Church, we will have a pit bull jaw-locking grip on biblical values. But we will live with an open-handed posture on tactics. We will live with an open-handed posture on strategies. Because what is effective today might not be effective five years from now. What's effective five years from now might not be effective ten years from now. But the values at the core of who we are and what we believe will always, always remain the same. The vintage values will not change. And that's one thing I love about you guys. That's one thing I love about Central Christian Church. Throughout 80 years, the values have remained the same. But the tactics have changed. And you guys have adjusted your sails to those changing of the tactics, right? Uh, Marshall McLuhan, he, he said this. He says, we drive into the future using our rearview mirror. We drive into the future using our rearview mirror. And so throughout this series, it's my hope that together we can look into the rearview mirror and discover some vintage values that we too can choose to apply that will drive us into the future as a church. So as we kick off this series, I want to talk to you about this idea of walking in faith. Our predecessors, they walked in faith. We're going to be a people that walk by faith, not by sight. We're going to live life in such a way that we walk in faith that will leave a legacy behind us. And so we're going to talk about three legacy stoppers, and then we're going to talk about three essentials to living a life of faith, all right? So, so turn to your neighbor and tell them, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. I just need a drink of water, but I appreciate you helping me out with the pause there. I want to talk to you about this passage. Oh, I forgot about this. Uh, my grandma, my grandma taught me a lot of things. Back to my grandma real quick before we dive in. Uh, she taught me one thing that I love. She, she taught me to always drink Coca-Cola and spit out Pepsi. I don't know if you guys, any Coca-Cola fans in the house? Anybody? Anybody? Debbie right here? Oh, oh, sorry. Took your head off. Hey, 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 hey. Right here, right here, right here. Coca-Cola. Thanks for ducking, Jenny. You, you were like Stonewall. You didn't even flinch. That was impressive. That was awesome. All right, well, hey, uh, back into where we are. So three legacy stoppers. One of the, the, the stories in, in the Old Testament, a vintage scripture that I think is heart-wrenching, 
uh, finds itself in Numbers 13 through 14. And uh, man, I've been living in this passage, I feel like, for like the past 18 months, past 12 months. And, and we're going to do like a whole series on it, maybe at some point, or for sure a whole message. We're not going to have time to dive into the weeds today, but just want to give you a 30,000 foot level view of, of Numbers 13 through 14. And here's what's taking place in this text. Uh, Moses has delivered, the, the, actually God's delivered through the hand of Moses, uh, the people of Israel from, from Egypt, right? And so the, they've left Egypt, miracles have happened, it's crazy what God has done, uh, but they have not yet taken the promised land. And so they're in this in-between space, right? And so we hit Numbers 13, and there's a lot of people, 600,000 men, not including women and children. They got their animals, they got all this stuff, and so it's, a, it's an organizational nightmare. Uh, but, but through Moses' father-in-law, God gives him this instruction to break down these 600,000 people into different tribes, right? So they got 12 tribes uh, broken down, and there's a leader from each tribe. And so Moses says, actually God tells Moses, send a leader from each tribe to go spy out the promised land. They're on a recon mission. Gather data, come back, and we're going to go take this land, this promised land that I'm giving you. He tells them from the onset, it's yours. It's yours for the taking. Uh, now, Now go get some data. And so they send leaders of these 600,000 men, not including women and children, into the land, right? And Joshua and Caleb are some of them, and, and they, they go and they, they, they check it out, and they're like, man, the land is awesome. It's flowing with milk and honey. Like, it's amazing. But there's a problem. There's giants in the land. And they're like, we can't do that. A matter of fact, like, we might as well go back to Egypt because they're going to kill us. So we're not doing that, even though God had promised them so they walk in fear, not in faith. And as a result, only two men that went with that group see the promised land. Everyone else dies in the desert. They wander around 40 years. God says, hey, you've been, you spied out the land for 40 days. You're going to live in this desert 40 years. This generation is going to die. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I think it's one of the most gut-wrenching stories in the Bible. And so they stepped on some landmines that destroy their faith. And I think we can draw out some principles so we don't step on those same landmines and have our faith destroyed. So here's the first one. Uh, we're going to give you three, just filter through which one best applies to you. Number one, uh, they had a wrong view of self. They have a wrong view of, of themselves. Like they're God's chosen people, right? Uh, but, but they don't see themselves as that. They see themselves as inferior. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. There's a big difference there. Sometimes I fear in the church where we get this confused and we think, I'm just a worm, I can never do anything. And, and that's not humility, that's, that's insecurity. And that needs to be addressed. But, but humility says, I'm not gonna think about my needs, I'm gonna think about your needs, how can I help you? What, what do you need? I'm gonna set myself aside, how, how can I serve you? That's humility. But they have a wrong view of themselves. And so some subpoints to this, uh, they have insecurity. I already mentioned that. Uh, they said this in Numbers 13, They said, next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought of us too. Their insecurity. Isn't it interesting how we project our insecurity, not only to our friends and family, but we project our insecurities onto our enemies as well. That's what the Israelites do. Uh, they're walking in fear. They, they're, they're afraid. They're not walking in faith. And, and so much so that they say, you know what? We can't do that. We might as well go back to Egypt where we were slaves, right? Fear will make us say some stupid things. When we're not walking in faith and we're walking in fear, we say some dumb things. Like, how dumb is that? Like, God has delivered you from this, this nation called Egypt. You've been enslaved, partner. Like, what makes you think that's a good idea? Fear will make us say some stupid things. Uh, second, they, they feel very inadequate. They say they're stronger than we are. We can never do that. Listen, when you judge yourself by yourself, 
and not the God within you, you will always feel inadequate. Finally, they were reluctant. They're like, we can't do that. God said, this is your land. Go take it. It's yours for the taking. They're like, ah, we, no, 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 we, we can't. We can't do that. We can't do that. Listen, feelings of insecurity, fear, inadequacy, reluctance, all point to a wrong view of self. And if this is an area where you battle, and we all battle these to some varying degree, but to the point that it paralyzes you to move forward on what God has asked us to do, then, man, we've got to wrestle that to the ground and get victory there. Second thing, they have a wrong view of people. They have a wrong view of people. Uh, I don't know how you view people around you. I don't know how you view the culture around you. But, but as long as people are a problem to be avoided rather than a person to be loved, it will be hard for us to apply some vintage values that, that laid the foundation of this church. As long as people are a problem to be avoided rather than a, a person to be loved, it will be hard for us to take new ground. Now check this out in Matthew 36. This is... Jesus speaking, he says, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. Compassion, right? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when we see people who think differently than us, then when, they, when they live differently than us, when they have a different worldview, maybe a different religion altogether, do we see them as a person to be loved, harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd? Or do we see them as a person to be avoided? That's a challenge. It's a challenge for us. And I think to some degree we all... We all struggle with that. But if we're going to live by faith and leave a legacy in this world, we're going to have to see people as God sees them and treat everyone with dignity, respect, regardless of their worldview, regardless of their behavior. Third observation is this. They have a wrong view of God. They have a wrong view of God. And so A.W. Tozer says this. I think it's in your program. He, he, I love this quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, now, whenever I say the word God, what what comes into your mind? Do you see him as like this cruel dictator, like with a shotgun from heaven waiting for you to make a mistake to like blow you up? Do you see him as a loving father that has your back? And you believe that that if God is for us, who can be against us? Or do we we view God as like this deity way off in the cosmos, not really involved in the affairs of people? How do you view God? Because your view of God is the most important thing about you. The Israelites had a wrong view of God, and they see giants in the land, right? And they're like, we can't do that because they're really big. And they lose sight of how big their God is. And I'll be honest, sometimes I fall into the same trap. Sometimes I'm like, man, I got this project. It's overwhelming. My family's in a crisis. I don't know what we're going to do. My financial situation is spinning out of control. How are we going to handle this? And I view the giant in the land instead of fixing my eyes on the God who's bigger than any giant we could face. So in Numbers, or sorry, Jeremiah 32, 17 says this. It says, help me out with the red word. All sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing. Nothing. Say it one more time. Nothing. Nothing is too hard for you. Man, if we could live through that lens, nothing's too hard for you. I want to help us to wrap our mind around this concept. And so uh, in Genesis uh, 1.16, it, it reads this. It says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made some stars. It's like, ah, no big deal. Here's the moon. Here's the sun. Ah, stars. What the heck? There you go. It's like an afterthought almost. So, so I want to think about this. So, so how fast does light travel? Who knows how fast does light travel? Fast, super fast. 186,000 miles per second, right? 186,000 miles per second. So a beam of light is leaving that light, 
hitting my retina at 186,000 miles per second. So fast, I don't even see it happening, right? So think about this, 186,000 miles per second. So today, on Sunday morning, February 10th, your alarm clock goes off at 7 a.m. By the time your feet hit the floor at 7.08, a beam of light has traveled from the sun and traveled 93 million miles and is going past your house in just eight minutes. By the time you sat down for eggs at 7.41, a light beam has passed Jupiter. By the time Scott and the team finished the worship set at 9.30, a beam of light has left Pluto. That, that it will, that by next Thursday afternoon, the beam of light will be leaving our solar system. It will take until July 2023 for that beam of light to reach Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to our sun. By 2030, the beam of light will only have 20 stars behind it, and our sun will appear to be a little yellowish star just disappearing into the galactic darkness. As the light beam heads towards the center of our Milky Way galaxy at 186,000 miles per second, it will travel 32,000 years before it reaches the center of our galaxy. But it will have to travel another 50,000 years before it reaches the other side of our Milky Way galaxy. And when it finally gets there, it will leave behind about 100 billion stars. And our Milky Way galaxy is only an average-sized galaxy out of the 50 billion other galaxies, and that is just what the scientists call the known universe. As the light beam uh, continues to travel, it'll have to travel another 80,000 years before it reaches the Midgelanic Clouds, the closest galaxy or series of galaxies to our Milky Way. At this point, we've moved 160,000 years into the future, and our beam of light is still moving at 186,000 miles per second. Wow. But it still faces 1.8 million years of empty space before it reaches the Andromeda Galaxy. If the light beam travels for another 2 million years, it will encounter open space, after which it will have to travel 20 billion more years before it reaches the edge of what scientists call the known universe. So if your brain feels like Plato right now, try reading that. Uh, I'm with you. But, but, but lean back into this part. I want you to hear this. So after you travel 20 billion years at 186,000 miles per second, and after you've passed 50 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in each one, that little beam of light will have only seen what Psalms 8.3 calls the work of God's fingers. The psalmist said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And we got to frame up our God as he is and not see him as this pale face altar boy because he's a big God and he cares for you. He sees the details of your life and he's bigger than any giant you could ever face. But the Israelites don't see him that way. And they say, oh no, we can't do that. There's too many obstacles. It's a wrong view of God. It paralyzes their faith. God's a big God. He's powerful. He's got your back. He's a good dad. He cares about the needs of his people. Yeah. There's a framework I've been challenging the staff with over these past few weeks, and I want to challenge you with it as well. Here's the, here's the formula. Here's the, here's the framework I want you to filter as we move into the future, applying some of these vintage values. If I bring my best, and I plan to, if you bring your best, and God brings his best, what is possible? If I bring my best, and I plan to, you bring your best, and I hope you do, God brings his best, and I know he wants to. What's possible? I believe God has greater things for us than we've ever experienced. John 14, 12 says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. This is Jesus speaking. Watch this, help me out with this. He says, he will do even greater things. <laughs> That's a crazy claim. You're gonna do greater things than Jesus, what? 
He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. God has done great things in the past 80 years, and we honor that. I'm so thankful for that. But I'm just saying the next 80 years, God has greater things. And here's the deal. He wants to use you. He wants to use you to usher in those greater things. It's awesome. So we've discovered three legacy stoppers. Now I want to look at three essentials to living a life of faith that leaves a legacy. So you can turn your Bibles, if you would, uh, to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to make three observations from this story that I hope will build our faith and encourage us to walk in faith and to leave a life that lives a legacy. So check this out. 2 Kings chapter 3. We got a map I want to show you. So uh, here's what's taking place. Uh, The kingdom of Israel is divided. And so there's a northern kingdom, Israel. There's a southern kingdom called Judah. And so uh, Moab is actually paying tribute to Israel. They're not not part of the same territory, but they're they're paying them funds uh, to be good friends, be good neighbors. Edom is paying Judah tribute, okay? And uh, Israel has had a change of command. And so now Moab... Is saying, we're not going to support you guys anymore. And so, uh, so that's where we pick it up. In 2 Kings 3, beginning in verse 9, it said, So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So there are these three kings, let's go back to the map real quick, sorry. That wasn't fair to, to my man in the back. Uh, so, so look at Israel, look at Judah, look at Edom, look at Moab. Like, is that a fair fight, three against one? No. Like, like they're bigger, like they're much bigger. Not just a little bit, but it's three against one. So the deck is stacked, and they're thinking, this is going to be a a slam dunk. We're going to teach these boys a lesson, and we're going to go home. Quick trip, no problem. All right, so so the king of Israel and the king of Judah and the king of Edom, they they set out. And, And it says, after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no water, no more water for themselves or for their animals. A roundabout march for seven days. Now, scholars think a couple things here. They interpret this a couple ways. They, they, could, they, they think one interpretation is they went the wrong way. Like they just took a bad route, and now they've ran out of water. Poor leadership, bad planning. Another opinion is that they're trying to perform an old miracle. I don't know if this sounds familiar, but they march around for seven days, like Joshua and Jericho. And they think they're going to get the same miracle, but they don't realize that God likes to do new things. And so, so they're, they're, God's not going to bend his knee to their formula. And so now they've run out of water and they've got, they've got cattle because like it's a long march. Uh, they've got men, they've got horses and now no water. It's hard to have a, a healthy army when you don't have water. So they're in trouble. In verse 10, it says this, say what? They exclaimed. That's the Hebrew version. It says, says what? Exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat said, uh, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour, hands on the wa- uh, pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, let's, let's, get, let's connect with him. Uh, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, uh, went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, uh, why do you involve me? right? He says, go to the prophets of your father and your mother. He's like, why are you, why are you in, coming to me now at this point? Elisha said, as surely, uh, oh, here's what it says in verse 13. Uh, no, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us together to hand us, to deliver us into the hands of, of Moab. Verse 14, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, 
if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, I would not pay attention to you. <laughs> He's like to the king of Israel, I don't really like you. King of Moab, I don't know you. Jehoshaphat, I like you. So I, let's, let's talk. Now we, now we can move forward. And so uh, he says this, uh, bring me a harpist, right? Dudes are at war. He's asking for a harp. <laughs> I'm like, you trying to set mood music, bro? Like, they want to chop off our heads. We're trying to take some land. Like, what's going on? Bring me a harpist. And Elisha is going to teach us three things, three essentials to living a life of faith. And the first is this. First fill in the blank is this. Faith is birthed in the presence of God. Faith is birthed in God's presence. So 2 Kings 3.15 says this. Now bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. He, he, he turns his attention upward. He begins to worship God. And in that moment, the hand of the Lord comes on Elisha and he gives him a word from the Lord for these guys. I want to ask Scott to come on up and, and join me. Let's give it up for Scott as he comes. Scott. Scott's going to help us teach this and, and grasp a hold of this principle. And, and so, uh, Scott, give us some mood music. See that? See how the atmosphere changes? It's dry, it's dull. Music changes the atmosphere. Elisha says, Bring me a harpist. He begins to worship God. Mood changes. The hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha. He says, I got a word for you. Faith is birthed in God's presence. If you need a word from God, it's found in His presence. You need a vision from God, it's gonna come from his presence. You need some help from the Lord, it's gonna come from his presence. We gotta posture ourselves in his presence. So, so, so time out, stop for a minute. Listen to this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's powerful. But now, Scott, you do it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Yeah. Feel the difference? Big difference. Keep playing. You're going to help me preach this. Faith is birthed in God's presence. Presence, worship, changes the atmosphere. It changes our perspective. It takes our eyes off the giants in the land and puts our eyes on how big the God we serve is. It changes everything. That's why we want to have a night of prayer and worship on July, or February 26th from 7 to 8 p.m. Not, not so we can sing songs together, not so you can hear another message, but because, oh God, unless you show up, we're done. Legacy is left in the past and there's nothing to move forward with. But, oh God, if you go with us, I'm gonna bring my best. You're gonna bring your best. God's gonna bring his best. What might the Lord have in store for us? But we need him more than ever. 
We need him. And so how are you gonna apply this to your life? When you come home from work tomorrow and you wanna kill everything that breathes, remember this, there's presence. There's peace in his presence. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Do you have joy today? Do you have fullness of joy? Because it's found in his presence. If you need peace in your life, it's found in his presence. You need perspective, it's found in his presence. Faith is built in his presence. It's not just a feeling, it's gonna build your faith. It's gonna give you a fresh vision for your kids, fresh vision for that relationship, fresh vision for your coworkers. It'll be birthed in his presence. Second observation is this, faith has to go beyond inspiration into participation. Faith must move us beyond inspiration into participation. So, so Elisha says, bring me a harpist. Starts to worship, the hand of the Lord comes on him. And here's what it says in, in 2 Kings 3.16. He said, this is what the Lord said. He got a word from the Lord. He says, make this valley full of ditches. Make the valley full of ditches. Interesting. I would have thought it would read, and it poured down rain, and the word of the Lord said, get a bucket and drink. But it didn't say that. It said, even though there's no cloud in the sky, even though there's no water on the ground, I need you to get a shovel, because I'm about to do something big. And we're going to start digging ditches. It's going to move us beyond inspiration into participation. We see this vintage value lived throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God delivered his people out of Egypt, but it required the participation of Moses and Aaron. God parted the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites to walk through on dry ground, right? But it required the priests stepping into the water first. It required them to participate. God did give them the promised land, but it required Joshua and an army who thought their God was bigger than any giant in the land to go take the land. It required participation. God did kill a giant named Goliath, but it required a teenage boy to say, my God is bigger. In 1939, William Jessup came to San Jose to preach a four-week revival. Thank God his faith moved him beyond inspiration to participation. And that participation led to this 80-year legacy. Our faith must move us beyond inspiration into participation. I don't know about you. So, so after my grandpa passed away, uh, I moved in with my grandma, who I told you about, uh, to help out with the garden, to help out around the house. And uh, I worked uh, as uh, just a handyman, just blowing insulation into new houses outside of St. Louis. Not the most desirable job in Missouri in July. It was a sweaty job. It was a nasty job. Blowing insulation in new houses. It was awful. But I worked with coworkers that, that didn't know God, that were strung out on drugs, and I would pray in the morning, oh God, help my coworkers to know you. Deliver them from their addictions, just like you've delivered me, God, help them. And one morning, I remember it clear as day, sitting at my grandma's table, I opened up my Bible and I started reading in Matthew 14. And it's a story about, about Jesus teaching for a long time, and, and so much so that the people that he's talking to are ready to pass out because they haven't eaten in a long time. So the disciples say, Jesus, send them home so they can get some food to eat. And Jesus said something profound, and it struck me. He said, you feed them. <laughs> we don't even have a lunchbox, Jesus. What are you talking about? 
But Jesus was looking for faith that moved beyond inspiration into participation. And I wonder for you what you've been praying for, what you've been asking God for. If God's already working upstream, he's just looking for your participation. And I felt like that was his word to me that day. Tim, why do you think you're blowing insulation? I do want to save them. I do want to rescue them. That's why you're here. (laughs) That's why I sent you. Listen, we live in a community. In Santa Clara County, 1.7 million people don't know Jesus. That statistic will never change until our faith moves us beyond inspiration into participation. Who have you invited to church lately? Has your faith moved you to participate? Who who have you told about what God is doing in your life besides those that share the same worldview as you? How are we going to participate? Because until our faith moves us beyond inspiration into participation, nothing's going to change. God desires for you to participate with him what he desires to do here. And I close with this. Faith continues regardless of what is seen. 2 Kings 3, 17 through 18. Faith continues regardless of what is seen. Help me out with this. It says, for for this is what the Lord says. You will see. You're not going to see anything. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet, this valley will be filled with water. You, your cattle, other animals will drink. This is an easy thing. Look at that. This is an easy thing for the Lord. And he will hand Moab over to you as well. What was their death sentence was an easy fix for God. Not a big deal at all. But it required them to get into his presence. Required them to dig some ditches to participate. Required them to take action regardless of what is seen. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines faith as this. Faith, belief in that which has no tangible proof. Vintage value of central. Our founding fathers of this church moved forward despite of what they saw. They didn't see what we see. They didn't know what we know. But in spite of what they saw, they took ground. They moved forward in faith. Moses trusted an unseen God in the face of a visible Pharaoh. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they trusted an unseen God in the faces of some very real flames. Daniel trusted an unseen God in the face of a very real lion's den. Gideon trusted an unseen God in the face of an overwhelming army. My grandma trusted an unseen God for her grandson when I gave her no reason to. My grandma, I remember her coming to my my baseball games and my favorite player was Ozzie Smith of the St. Louis Cardinals. My grandma, one of her vintage values she instilled in me was to cheer for the St. Louis Cardinals and always stick it to the Chicago Cubs. I love my grandma. But I always wanted to play shortstop because Ozzie Smith was my grandma and I's favorite player. And I can still hear my grandma on the stands when I took the field. Come on, Ozzie. Come on, Ozzie. Let's go. Regardless how awful I was playing. My grandma will call out greatness in me. In the midst of my chains of addictions, my grandma talked to me like I was a free man. When I dropped out of high school, my grandma talked to me like I was a scholar. When I was running from God, didn't want anything to do with him. My grandma talked to me like I was a pastor. When I graduated from college and was invited to be the commencement speaker for my graduating class, everyone was astonished. (laughs) And so was I. 
But if my grandma could have seen it, she would have said, Tim, I've known this for years because she had been calling greatness out of me when I gave her no reason to. And she allowed me to step into that. William Jessup didn't see what we see. He didn't know what we know. But he moved forward in faith. And he was simply trying to be faithful with what God asked him to do. We will not be content with what we see either. We will take new ground. We'll believe God for bigger things. And I don't know what that, what's on the horizon, but I know my God does. And I know there's gonna be giants in that land, but I do know my God is bigger. And we're gonna live with that lens. If you bring your best, I bring my best, God brings his best, what is possible? But we're going to live we're gonna have an accurate view of ourselves to get there. It's gonna require an accurate view of the people around us to get there. We're gonna to have to have an accurate view of God if we're gonna get there. And we're gonna walk in faith. We realize that faith is birthed in God's presence. We realize that faith must move us beyond inspiration into participation. And we will be a people who believe God for greater things than we can currently see because it's his desire to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than all we could ask or imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the legacy of your church throughout generations. God, thanks for the foundation that's built on you and your word and your truth. God, help us to continue that legacy. Thank you, God, for the legacy that is Central Christian Church. We celebrate that, God. We celebrate those who have gone before us. We celebrate their dedication. We celebrate their, their pioneer spirit and their sacrifice. Oh, God, may those same values be instilled in us, that we can take new ground in our day, in our generation. God, may you give us faith to believe you for greater things ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.